You're listening to Masters of Digital Transformation, brought to you by AIM10X and hosted by Tony Salzana. Hey, welcome to Masters of Digital Transformation. I'm your host, Tony Saldana. Each episode, we bring you industry stories with insights into some of the top challenges around digital transformation with a specific focus, as you all know, in planning. I'm really excited today because my guest is Vikram Agarwal. He's a globally celebrated supply chain and business transformation industry leader. Vikram spent about 30 of your 32 years at Unilever, where Vikram, you were EVP of supply chain. And then, of course, your role as a chief supply chain officer at Avon and several other things in between. Vikram's currently a board advisor. And uh, before I do anything else, first off, welcome, Vikram. Thank you so much, Tony. Thank you for having me in this talk. Oh, you're very welcome. Like I said, I've been uh, looking forward to this. Would you mind sharing with our listeners your fascinating career journey? Yeah, so I started off straight from university with Unilever. I think the simple way to look at it is that out of the 30 years that I spent with Unilever, first 15 years were in India and the second 15 years were outside India. And uh, while I was in India, I largely spent time in manufacturing in the factories and some bit in operational planning. Uh-huh. And from there, I moved on to regional roles again in the supply chain, initially doing strategy and in, uh, in manufacturing and CapEx investments, and then uh, moving on to doing procurement for Asia and Africa. From there, I moved on to doing uh, leadership in the global category role, which was in UK. Okay. I think by then I had moved out enough. So the company decided to send me to Africa to move me again. So I was based in Johannesburg at that time and responsible for the Unilever Africa supply chain. It was from there that I saw the opportunity coming through from Avon to join them as a chief supply chain officer. When I looked at the company, then I was tremendously impressed by the potential of that company. Huge legacy, 130 years old, huge social impact, about 5 million representatives around the world, which is a direct seller's. Uh, huge portfolio of brands and so on. So I joined Avon and came back to UK. Then I decided to move on and spend more time in advisory assignments, which is what I do mostly now. So I think I've been fortunate all through the career to be able to work in different parts of the world, starting from India, then Singapore, and then uh, South Africa, and then UK. But also, besides the location that once I had moved out of India, then my roles were all regional and global. So mm-hmm. the countries where I was based was not so important as the countries which I was working with. I've also been fortunate to work across all dimensions of the supply chain, as they call it, the plan, source, make, deliver. And most of the time in my career, I have been a part of the business leadership teams, which has, of course, taught me a lot about how to bring supply chain into the business rather than working in the supply chain for the supply chain. That's true. That's true. So I think it's been a great learning experience. And I continue to learn, of course, that as I go around, meet different kinds of people, see different challenges, see the transformation agenda which companies are pursuing. All of that uh, really draws me in. And if there's something like that going over there, then I immediately start feeling, hey, there's a party going on there and I need to be in that party. (laughs) Oh, you're very humble. I I know you're much sought after there. And in fact, that's one of the things I'd like to start off with because I happen to know that one of your passions is 
real and authentic leadership. And of course, that's in the context of an increasing global and multinational cultural world, multicultural world. So firstly, what is authentic leadership? And then how does culture affect it? So let me take the second part first, is that when you're dealing with teams which are international and you have, a, let's say, a multifunctional team, which is running a global project, and you've got some people from Europe, some people from Asia, maybe Japan, China, US, whatever, then you need to be really conscious on how do you communicate effectively. The need for clear communication is something which everybody will talk about, but what is clear to one culture may not be so clear to another culture. Somebody may require more context onto the communication, somebody may require less context. The way people take decisions in a meeting, the way people express their disagreements, there are cultures where they'll be very open and they'll tell you in the face that I disagree with this, But in some others, it may be delivered as a much more subtle message. (laughs) So understanding how decisions happen, how communication can be made more effective. What kind of leadership do people expect? Yeah, there are places we talked about authentic leadership, and I'll come to that. There are places where the more authentic you are, the more respected you are. But there are also places where the leader is supposed to be isolated and placing himself or herself on a pedestal, the vulnerability is not so appreciated. Oh, yes. how can my leader become vulnerable? <laughs> so if you are vulnerable with the wrong audience, then you may very well send a sense of insecurity in the organization that if our leader is feeling vulnerable, then what about us? Yeah, so exactly. The way that people get incentivized, the way they get motivated, the way they get demotivated is a very interesting nuance, which I have been fortunate to educate myself as I worked with people uh, all across the world. But uh, again, to the first part of your question, one thing which always works is being authentic. Uh Then when you're unsure of how to do, please be authentic. Uh There is nothing worse than people finding out that as their leader, you have told them something which was not entirely true. Yes. So so I think- It's a good way to lose credibility. Whether you're dealing with somebody from Japan or from the US or from Africa or from Southeast Asia, I think authenticity in maintaining that is really something which I strongly believe in. There are various uh, forms in which it has been interpreted by a number of authors. There's there's the concept of finding your true north, Uh that you can only be authentic once what is your true north. Uh Otherwise, you'll end up saying things without knowing what you are about. So it has to start with yourself. There is an it, which is the commercial part of the business. There is another it which is the environment which you operate in. Uh, uh And then there is the we, which is you and your team, how you Uh work with them. And then first and foremost, there is the I, how you manage yourself. So I think the the concept of authenticity has been uh, expressed by various great authors in different ways. But my take on that is be what you are, say what you can do, say things as they are. And that sort of works in any culture that you're operating on. That is so true because authenticity really does help leaders, as you said, you know, specifically in the right translated culture for the organization to start to trust you. And as long as uh, they trust you, obviously, that's the foundation that's important. And then, of course, culture makes this even more interesting because, as you correctly point out, you have to play to your audience, so to speak, in culture. But culture can also drive a lot of misunderstandings. Language can drive a lot of misunderstandings. The other day, you you were sharing an interesting anecdote from Japan. Would you mind recounting that for our audience here? 
Yeah, this was when I was with Unilever and I was dealing with quite a big company, me on the procurement side, and that company was hopefully going to be a supplier. And after I had that meeting, and that was in Tokyo, a very good meeting, very productive meeting, everybody committed to making it move forward. We all shook hands and then we started walking out of the meeting and I told the CEO of the company as I was walking out, I'm so glad that I came all the way and we are thinking along parallel lines now. And after that, absolutely no progress. One week, two weeks, one month, two months, nothing happens. And then my assistant called up them and asked them that, look, what has really happened? Now, they were not very forthcoming, but after a couple of calls, then they said, look, I thought you were no longer interested because your boss said that we are thinking along parallel lines and parallel lines never meet. So you have completely confused us with your parting statement. So it's little things like this, which one learns along the way is that a small turn of phrase like that can have a huge impact on the outcome of what otherwise was a very productive meeting. There you go. And and it is uh, interesting because it can be innocuous things that, that kind of trip us up as leaders. So fascinating. And I know there is a lot more there given your more than three decades of experience and, and anecdotes around the world. But I want to shift gears a little bit because among your many other capabilities, you're also uh, among the pioneers in the area of sustainability, specifically as uh, it's applied to supply chain. And I know sustainability is a little bit at risk for becoming a buzzword these days because people tend to look at it simplistically as, let's say, just climate change or just one topic, whereas it is much more, isn't it? A 360-degree view includes not just climate, soil management and social impact, including sustainable wages and so on and so forth. And you were among the first to actually recognize this and apply this specifically within consumer packaged goods, including, I believe, applying it to palm oil management. Tell us a little more of how you actually ended up leading the charge for palm oil sustainability. Yeah, I'm not sure whether I led the charge, but certainly my own association with sustainability started with palm oil. And at that time, the industry was coming under a lot of pressure, basically because of all kinds of negative news, deforestation and the, the dilapidation of peatlands and land encroachment. And I must say that when all this talk started as a procurement person, then at that time, I was rather dismissive in the beginning, saying, ah, these are the guys who are really making my job more difficult, because <laughs> that will mean that I can't buy anything from anybody at the lowest possible price. But when I started getting involved on it in the ground, and I saw that what is being reported is really happening in terms of peatlands getting drained and planted upon deforestation, the slash and burn practices, which you hear so much, particularly in Indonesia. Mm. When I saw that happening, I said that, look, this there is some merit. This is not exactly without cause. And that was the beginning of my association with the palm oil industry in working with them and driving through uh, these changes, which later on gained momentum. And I must say that once we had got some level of alignment in the beginning, then the whole industry, both the consumers as well as the producers, were very quickly able to get together and see the longer term uh, merit of uh, sustainability in palm oil. And then, so there was, uh, so the start was really my first exposure was with palm oil. I must say that started from a point of view that sustainability means not doing anything negative. I was still not in a place that sustainability can mean something positive. Yeah, so it was more about eliminating the ills of non-sustainability. Yeah. yeah. 
and then the second uh, industry which i saw in that was the tea tea industry particularly coming from the tea plantations again starting with what are the land the plantation agronomy practices being used is it resulting in uh, soil uh, degradation what is the kind of water resources which are being used are we uh, draining out marshlands in order yeah. to get the water to do the irrigation and the plantation and then it enlarged i think that is the time when it started enlarging from the agricultural sustainability part to what does it mean in terms of the social impact of large scale mm. agriculture mm. yeah and it's the tea plantations which opened my eye on it because the large tea plantations are like towns in themselves there are people mm. living inside it they have a sociology of their own they have their social dynamics they have their economic prosperity or non prosperity all coming from that economic system so the impact which an industry like that has got on the communities and the society at large is huge so this is where thoughts start to shift from producing sustainably to impacting communities sustainably mm-hmm. and that's where uh, concepts such as fair living wages and uh, and minimum lifestyle criteria all of that start coming in that's also where one starts looking at how important it is for agriculture to be inclusive to the communities mm-hmm. by developing a breed of what what we call agripreneurs yeah this is not about creating a very large estate by taking the smallholder farmers land it's about making them a part of the ecosystem which can be there into your supply chain and be inclusive about that in a way that it makes economic merit and those communities also prosper this is very eye opening because the the traditional thinking is that large companies come in and then they try and drive scale which essentially means sometimes having the poor small business or poor small farmer go out of business but what you're talking about is ecosystems and that's a great example of how you actually yeah. you know can drive scale at a very small level yes that that's that's right tony and again that is something which i realized is that where large companies can contribute is by setting up the industrial base let's say the factory which processes green leaf into black tea that's an industrial activity but how green leaf is grown there is a limited contribution which large farms can make to that it is much more uh, effective if it is made around uh, let's say catchment area of uh, smallholder farmers who then bring the green leaf to you and then you get to contribute into higher yields better cropping practices better planting material uh, better agronomy better irrigation and the whole lot and there are there are a number of international bodies who work with smallholders the dutch government has got body the us government has got bodies so you're not short of international support in mobilizing education and field training for the farmers if you just get the model right and also where it makes commercial sense is what would you prefer would you prefer to invest in education of a few thousand smallholder farmers around your factory and improve the yield or would you prefer to sink millions and millions in acquiring land and then planting on that i think i i don't even need to say the answer so it makes social sense it makes commercial sense and it makes sense from terms of quality because if you end up owning a 10000 hectares estate you'll not be able to maintain uniform quality anywhere but if you got 10000 smallholder farmers with 1 hectare each then you have 
10,000 quality champions. Oh, that's fascinating. And and you talked about examples, obviously, of palm oil and and tea, which are more in the you know agricultural space. But let's talk maybe of something in the more mining. Uh, related area, because I know you played a big role there as well. Yes, so I was associated with the responsible mining code. So essentially about uh, making sure that wherever we need to mine minerals for industrial use, that is done in a controlled way, is that it's not that if you have a mountain of limestone, then anybody is free to go and chop off the mountain wherever they want. And (laughs) it has to be done in a controlled way (coughs) and in a manner of course, that people are not exploited. The labor gets paid fairly on that. And the area where you're doing is such that it can be regenerated over a period of time. So you don't go so deep and so extensive in one particular plot that it is beyond redemption and then you just desert it and go away. So I think there are. it's a complex subject, but it's basically I would describe it in saying, ensure that the wage practices are fair and ensure that you only take off what can be replenished by nature. Yeah. yeah. And as consumers get more and more educated about the whole tracking of the, the whole supply chain, this becomes really important, isn't it? Because I think Absolutely. this is no longer just the provenance of a few futuristic kind of leaders. This is now more and more becoming table stakes for businesses. If you want to have a viable business, then as the CEO, as the supply chain leader, as the procurement leader, you actually absolutely have to deliver this as a key performance indicator. Yes. And what I would add to that very correct statement, Tony, is that we have the opportunity in the supply chain to make it not sustainable, but also economically sustainable. That's true. Because the moment you start looking at sustainability, that is only something which you're doing for the good of the society. It's got a short life. Yeah. So you need to make the whole business, uh, create a business model around it, which is sound and which will stand the test of time to be able to deliver sustainability. So for instance, from where all of us can contribute in the supply chain, I'm coming back to foods now. It's a well-published fact that one third of the world's food gets wasted between Mm -hmm. the farm to the store. Yes, yes. And I'm not adding in that the food that we throw away in our homes with a half-eaten meal. But between the farm and the store, one-third of the world's food, which is 1.3 billion tons, and it comes to about $600 billion, is wasted every year. Even when a substantial portion uh, proportion of the world's population is undernourished. That is just purely in the supply chain, because it's between the farm and the retail. Those are the sort of things where all of us... Uh, in the supply chain have got a role to play. And if economic sense doesn't lie in saving $680 billion a year, then I don't know where it is. And and actually, that's a really good lead in to the other topic I wanted to chat with you on, which is you're a champion of the business first approach to supply chain. And this is a great example where you demonstrate how you can do good, but then also do well, right, uh, from a financial standpoint. Now, you've talked earlier about how leaders can fall into the trap of, for example, supply chain for supply chain, focusing within the supply chain. And you've also talked about technology, which I'll come back to later on. But let's start with the question of how can supply chain leaders avoid the trap of inward focus, supply chain for supply chain? 
maybe the reason that I'm able to respond to this question is because I have been mostly as part of multifunctional business leadership teams mm -hmm. for maybe the last 15, 20 years. And therefore, when you're sitting as a part of the team and the leader of the team calls upon you as the supply chain person to do something about a project, for example, mm -hmm. then you get stretched in directions to think beyond what you can do purely within the supply chain. Right, so it's right. about what you can bring to the business rather than what you can do within the supply chain. So I think to answer your question, if we really start from the basics is that what are the shareholders looking for? And once you, when you ask that question, you will get a set of very common answers. We are looking for better return on equity. We are looking mm -hmm. for better return on invested capital. We are looking for higher dividends, which is again, return on equity. Mm -hmm. So there's not a very wide variety of answers that you can get if you ask the shareholders. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. But if you take return on capital invested, then ultimately you come to the net profits divided by the working capital that has been invested right. in the business, the gross right. capital employed. Yeah. Right. Right. So, any business will ultimately boil down to three lines, which is about the revenue, about the profitability, and about the cash generation in the business. Mm -hmm. If you look at revenue, how does a supply chain play a role over there? Because there's often a myth saying that revenue is the purview of the salespeople or marketing mm -hmm. people. <laughs> yes, it is, but equally the supply chain in the same right as well. Besides the usual practice of increasing penetration by opening up more markets, setting up more warehouses, more distribution and all, which all comes naturally to all of us in the supply chain. It's also about how you can increase the rate of the revenue. Yes, How yes. you can turn out an innovation which would have normally taken two years, turn it out in six months' time. That is as much incremental turnover gained one and a half year ago. How can you uh, improve your cash conversion cycle so that you sell more or you sell quicker? And how can you improve the customer service? And I'm a strong believer in saying customer service should be 100%. Yeah. To my mind, service lost is sales lost. Yeah. The, the gurus will tell you that is not empirically true, but I'm operating more out of uh, philosophy over here than the empirics of it. Yeah. Now, if you then come to profitability, I think that is amply clear to most of us. It's about managing yeah. cost in the factories and the distribution and procurement. If you then come to cash, take out the profitability part. We have already talked about that. Below the profitability, what do you find? You find working capital. Exactly. And who's managing working capital in the companies? Who's managing the yeah. supplier yeah. payment terms? Who's managing yeah. the inventory? Yeah. Yeah. Or it comes to CapEx. Again, who's managing the CapEx? So I think the point of this is that if you look at value creation in any business, it will boil down to these three lines. And the supply chain is in a unique position to be able to impact all three lines positively. You can't do that by looking inwardly. You can't do that by just making sure that you introduce the next fancy robo in one of the factories, mm -hmm. which is able to do things three times faster without understanding what does their speed mean in terms mm -hmm. of the business value it is delivering. So I think the whole connect between the business and supply chain, in fact, I should say over the past 10 years or so has become much more transparent, much more seamless than what it would have been when I started my career where making sure that your factory is productive was the end of the expectation from the supply chain. Yeah, this is brilliant because what you've just provided is a masterclass for linking the whole activity system of 
the supply chain. And by the way, this is applicable to other functions as well. You could say the same for yes. information technology or anything yes. else, which is eventually we're working for the external results of the company. You equated that to a shareholder return. And then the levers of that, as you correctly pointed out, it's profits, it's revenue, and then yeah. it's cash. And, and so very nicely related to the activities of the supply chain. Now, I want to go back to the statement that you made around service levels. So tell us a little more about why you have this philosophy on 100% of service levels issues. You should be thinking as if they are sales lost. Yes. So there's a service level and there is the on-shelf availability. So, yes. so there's, of course, a gap between them. And that gap is the customer's inventory. We talked about cash and that applies to everybody. So the customers also want to shrink their inventory. So do the producers. Yeah. So do the logistics uh, companies in between. So what it really means is that the gap between what we used to believe we can afford a blink in the service level because the customer will still have the stock to be able to put it on the shelf and we will not lose shoppers we will not lose sales to the end consumers the still even though we are short in service is fast disappearing mm -hmm. because of the optimization which is happening in all legs of the supply chain mm -hmm. yeah. and therefore as a producer as a brand owner, manufacturer, producer, distributor, you cannot afford to believe that I can be, let's say at a 95% service level and still not lose any sales. You are losing sales. And if you're asking your customer to keep a high inventory, you're paying it for it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a free lunch. So you're converting then service losses into cost for the business. Mm. Yeah. And that's why they say that once one of your products is off the shelf, and the shopper walks away from it, she's not going to wait for you. She'll yeah. choose the alternatives. Even more so with the advent of e-commerce, because it shows you the option right there. Yeah, and, and I wanted to talk to you about this because this is an example of older paradigms, such as, oh, don't worry, a 95% is, is good enough because customer inventory is going to uh, take care of that, or brand loyalty will take care of that. That is no longer true. And, and this is this is a world that's changing so rapidly that we have to question those old paradigms as you just did. So thank you for explaining that. And I now want you to explain another paradigm around digital transformation, because with the fourth industrial revolution, the use of technology has become the preeminent option to improve efficiencies and effectiveness of supply chains. And yet, you know extremely well that the choice of where digital transformation should focus on within the supply chain is extremely important. Tell us, what would you recommend leaders do here? Yeah, actually that part, Tony, you know much better than I do because <laughs> you've written a whole book on this. But I, I think digital transformation is, we have to make sure that it's not a buzzword for the organization. Mm -hmm. And when we are launching a digital transformation, then we are clear about what are we really trying to transform. And it can mean different things to different people. For example, for the fashion industry, it can be about how quickly are you able to bring new products, new fashions, new style onto the shelf with a good understanding of the consumer, whether it will be bought or it will not be bought, using digital to understand the consumer to roll out the fashions as fast as possible. For a commodity supplier, 
It could be about cost in the supply chain. How do you deploy digital in managing cost at each and every step of the supply chain, starting from farms to the end customer and shipping and logistics and all that? I'll take an extreme example. Let's take the jewelry industry. Mm. It's all about stocks. So therefore, how do you deploy digital to optimize stocks at the same time, making sure that a consumer get what she wants when she walks into the jewelry store? She'll obviously want to look at 20 different designs before she chooses one. So you need to make sure the 20 are available. At the same time, you're not burdening yourself with a mountain full of diamonds in your inventory. So it does different things to different people. Somewhere it is sweet, somewhere it is cost, somewhere it is about how you manage the inventory. And in fact, it is uh, started now going in a very big way into agriculture also, tying up dimensions of the soil condition, the fertilization, the, the climatic conditions, the crop species, waste in the farms. Remember I told you about the one-third waste in the food. That doesn't include the fruit which is never harvested and it is left to waste in the plant. Oh, okay, yes. So therefore, digital has got a role to play over there. So I think the first thing which I start asking whenever I get involved in any sort of a digital transformation is, all right, let's just simply start from the P&L of the company, Uh And then let's start seeing what is the line that you want to impact out of this. Uh And then you start coming up with answers, like I said, that it has to be around speed. It has to be around forecast accuracy, which is ultimately about holding the right inventory. So digital, particularly when underpinned by AI and machine learning, has got the capability to deliver any or all of these. Yes. But what's the one which is going to cause a maximum business impact? Imagine a manufacturer who has got a steady supply, just to keep it simple, and a steady customer. The customer is prepared to buy whatever you want, uh, whatever you produce. And the supplier is prepared to supply whatever you want. I wish there was a scenario like that, but let's assume that. Now, in that scenario, what digitization can do for you is speed. Because you've got an infinite customer and you've got infinite supply. So all you need to do is to be able to produce faster. So you then need to apply digitization to your manufacturing systems so that you're just producing more and more faster. So that may be a simple example, but like that, we can just keep extending it across the entire value chain to see where it has the maximum potential. And and that's another really important paradigm because I think historically, the evolution of digitization of the supply chain has been for productivity, right? Let's automate transactions. Whereas I think the approach that you were just describing is one that I call digital leverage points, which is step back and look at which of the various parts of the supply chain that you want to automate is going to have the maximum leverage to the business. And then, you know, follow a more strategic approach. Again, it's fascinating to see how you've been practicing some of this, all connected to the business first approach that we talked about. Now, before we go away, Vikram, I'd like to ask you a question that helps maybe our listeners translate all of these things that we've talked about, sustainability, authentic leadership, and then business first. If you were talking to a supply chain leader who's in the earlier part of their journey, wanting a successful career, what kind of advice would you give them? All three. I I hope that I would be consistent in giving that advice that uh, focus on your people, And when you focus on your people to choose the right balance between decision-making, autonomy, speed at which you are moving, all all of those when we talked about the 
people in the cultural aspects because they they are more people who are led by supply chain leaders than in most other functions that is so true yes you yes. you've got the factories you might even have plantations so there are more people who look up to the supply chain leader than in most other functions that's the first realization it's combination of people responsibility the impact that you can have and uh, second is pay attention to the wastage in your supply chain i don't mean wastage just in an economic sense but in a sustainability sense and for a food company it could mean ultimately delivering healthy and nutritious food to the customer how do you make sure that you are giving human beings what nature intended to give them from thousands of years ago and then the third dimension is the business part making sure that you are well connected with the business leadership teams you understand what the business is about you understand that where do the minds of your leadership colleagues lie invariably it will be around growth then comes profitability and then comes cash generation yeah. so make sure that you are a part of that journey very often people say our oh, supply chain is a black box to me i have heard ceo saying that in the past when oh. when as a supply chain leader you hear that that's an awakening call Mm. that's a call to tell you that you've been too inward looking yeah. you're not looking at what is happening in the rest of the business i hope i've been consistent to your question of what advice i would give the supply chain leaders it would be all of these three there we go ladies and gentlemen the secrets to success from vikram and uh, vikram given your incredible success and expertise and experience all over the world there's hardly anybody else that uh, i would look to for inspiration in this area so thank you so much for joining us i really enjoyed this talk i'd love to do more but we've run out of time but thank you for today thank you tony thank you for a very good and invigorating conversation and we'll keep talking absolutely look forward to it and to all of our listeners out there thanks once again for joining us i hope you enjoyed uh, our chat today and uh, make sure you subscribe to our show to keep getting new updates and until next time remember don't just implement planning redefine it thank you for listening to masters of digital transformation for more information be sure to check out www.09solutions.com/aim10x